Today on the Matt Wall Show, the death cult known as the Fat Acceptance Movement has claimed another victim, and she happens to have been one of its more visible advocates. Also, it's always been uh, bad news when Democrats and Republicans agree on something, which is evidenced by the disastrous bipartisan spending bill. Researchers supposedly discover a new cure for long COVID, but what the hell is long COVID? Is it anything? And Media Matters names their top misinformers of the year. I could not be more honored to have made the list. All of that and more today on the Matt Walsh Show. Well, if you're someone who has always wanted to read and understand the Bible, but you're not uh, sure where to start, then check out the Bible in a Year podcast from Ascension Press. The uh, Bible in a Year podcast is currently the most popular religion podcast in the U.S. Millions of people have listened to it, and twice it's hit the number one spot on Apple Podcasts. In the Bible in a Year, Father Mike Schmitz reads the entire Bible in 365 daily episodes, providing helpful commentary, reflection, and prayer along the way. What better way to start the new year? You can find the Bible in a Year podcast with Father Mike Schmitz for free in your favorite podcast app or on YouTube+. Plus. You can follow along with a special reading plan to help you better understand the story. Unlike any other Bible podcast, Bible in a Year follows a special reading plan that organizes the books of the Bible in a way that helps listeners understand the story. So get this reading plan at ascensionpress.com slash Walsh. If you want to start reading and, more importantly, understanding the Bible this year, go to ascensionpress.com slash Walsh to download the reading plan for free. It's ascensionpress.com slash Walsh to download the reading plan for free. You may not be uh, familiar with the name Jamie Lopez. I certainly wasn't until this week when she died, but her death is worth discussing, whether you'd heard of her or not before uh, before now. Lopez was the founder of a well-known beauty salon called Baby Doll Beauty Couture, and she was the star of a reality show called Super Size Salon. Now, as the title of the show indicates, the salon was focused on providing services to obese people, proudly billing itself as the world's first plus-sized salon. Lopez herself was a plus-size model, and uh, as media reports about her death have characterized her, she was a, quote, fierce advocate of fat acceptance and body positivity. Her show and her public brand centered around the basic message that everyone is beautiful no matter their size and we should accept and celebrate all body types. She was only 37 when she died this week. They've not released a confirmed cause of death, but the Daily Mail and other outlets report that she was suffering from heart complications, among other potential maladies. Now, there's a reason why I bring this all up, but before I flesh that out, it may be enlightening to watch a brief sneak peek of the Super Size Salon show, which was posted on uh, WeTV's YouTube channel a few months ago to promote the show. And the problems we're going to talk about are all illustrated, I think, very explicitly in this clip. And here it is. I've just always loved beautiful things. It's just a part of me. I've been doing makeup since I was 13 years old. I just have always just loved making women feel beautiful. Oh my God. I am a social media influencer in the plus size community. I want to inspire big girls all over the world. This is what I manifest every single day. Jamie in the big girl community is like an icon. She's very beautiful, confident. She is really a goat. Jamie's just a fabulous Amazon. She loves to just see people happy. You're gorgeous. I am the owner and creator and the HBIC of Baby Doll Beauty Couture. Welcome to Baby Doll! Welcome to Baby Doll! 
my dream was to create the first ever all-inclusive salon by plus-size girls for plus-size girls. You're in good hands. Society makes you hate yourself if you don't look a certain way. And I am damn determined to change that. Baby doll is about embracing who you are. Yes, girl. You might have fat ass people come to your salon, but you don't have a plus size salon when cheers for big asses like ours. All this is for all it is. So it's a message that's uh, a sermon that we hear all the time in our culture. We should not make obese people feel bad about themselves. Everyone is beautiful. Fat is beautiful. Everyone should be accepted. All weights, all sizes. Um, Indeed, fatness is now its very own identity group. There is, as we heard in the clip there, a, a community, a sisterhood of fat women, and this community deserves to be included and tolerated, even as they kill themselves in front of us. Now, the tragic reality here is that Jamie Lopez was apparently trying to lose weight towards the end of her life. At her heaviest, she had reached 846 pounds and found herself uh, unable, she was bedbound. She was unable to support her own weight enough to move around without assistance, and, and she had apparently dropped a significant amount of weight, I think maybe like half her body weight, but was still, you know, 400 pounds, extremely morbidly obese. And it would seem the damage had been done because our bodies are not meant to carry around that kind of weight. Our bones, our internal organs, our, you know, our hearts, none of it was built to support hundreds of pounds of excess fat. That's why morbid obesity will kill you. It's not an if here. There's no if. It's not like a maybe. The, the only thing that will stop a morbidly obese person from dying of their obesity is if they die from something else first or if they lose the weight before the clock runs out. Neither of those two things happen, and they will die of obesity, will 100% of the time. Um, Jamie Lopez was one of thousands upon thousands of obese people every year who, who perish from the condition. The clock runs out. Something like a quarter of a million Americans die from obesity-related causes every year, which makes up 10% of all obesity-related deaths globally, in spite of the fact that the U.S. only comprises 4% of the global population. Now, Lopez may have tried to lose weight at the end, but she was a part of and, and a victim of also a movement that tells obese people that they don't need to lose weight unless they want to. Like, if you want to, then go ahead, but, but you don't need to. The fat acceptance movement, body positivity, has killed countless people in this country. And now it's killed one of its more prominent advocates. And that's the point we should be focusing on. Now, this is not about exploiting, certainly not about making light of a woman's tragic death. It's about confronting the fact that the fat acceptance movement, typified by nearly everything you heard in that promotional clip, is a suicidal ideology. I mean, it is a death cult. Fat acceptance is a death cult. It's one of the most dangerous ideas in the world, and that's not an exaggeration. At a time when we're so focused on the alleged harms inflicted by, you know, quote-unquote misinformation, it's probably time that we start thinking about the misinformation that tells people like Jamie Lopez and so many others that morbid, suicidal, self-destructive obesity is something to be celebrated, that it's beautiful. Lopez will not be the only body positivity influencer to die an early death. They will almost all suffer the same fate. Fat acceptance became a mainstream phenomenon with its own slate of advocates and stars and influencers in just the past 10 years or so. We're reaching the point now where we might expect to start seeing uh, many of them succumb to their obesity. 
But then again, if 280,000 obesity-related deaths every single year isn't enough for a wake-up call, I imagine that every single, quote, fat acceptance celebrity could die, and that wouldn't be enough either. Still, whether people want to hear it or not, we need to start speaking some hard truths. Truths, truths such as this. Obesity is not beautiful. It is, it is not beautiful for the same reason that we don't call alcoholism beautiful or anorexia beautiful. If somebody engages in self-harm and cuts themselves, we don't say that the scars are beautiful. If a crazy guy self-immolates, we don't stand around the fire talking about how pretty the flame is. It's not because we hate the alcoholic or we hate the anorexic or we hate the cutter or we hate the self-immolator. Exactly the opposite. We love them and therefore we hate what is destroying them. You should hate the things that destroy threaten to destroy the people that you love, including obesity. Now, there, some people will undoubtedly criticize me for talking about this right now, only a couple days after the woman died. They'll say that it's exploitative, disrespectful. And yet, if she was a member of the alcoholism is beautiful movement and then died of liver disease stemming from alcohol consumption, we would all agree that it would be absurd to not talk about the connection. What else are you going to talk about? To ignore it would be ludicrous, even reckless. The same applies here. Now is not only an acceptable time, but the most important time to point out that there is nothing beautiful about self-destruction. There's nothing beautiful about an early grave. These are ugly, horrid things. They are brutal and grotesque. Fat acceptance as, as a movement, as an ideology, is brutal and grotesque. It is a celebration of death. We shouldn't just oppose it and disagree with it. We should hate it. We should hate it for the deadly, sinister propaganda that it is. Now, I think the problem, in part at least, is that we've bought into this, this lie that lifestyles are sacrosanct. Right? However, however a person chooses to live is automatically above reproach simply because they're living that way. To criticize a lifestyle, such as a lifestyle of overeating, gluttony, lethargy, laziness, that is to suggest that a person should live differently from how they're currently living. But that's the ultimate heresy in our culture. Because for us, the, the, the only thing you are meant to say or that you can say about a person's lifestyle is that it's courageous and inspirational. Right? We're at a point now where all lifestyles are courageous by default. Simply to live however you feel like living is an act of courage. Whereas to live differently from how you feel like living, to make purposeful changes with the intention of becoming a different sort of person is somehow an act of self-betrayal. And to encourage others to live differently is bigotry, prejudice, hatred. But this is all nonsense. And it is getting people killed. Lots of people every single day. When will enough be enough? That's the question. Now let's get to our five headlines. You know, with everything going on in the world right now, you could really use a good night's sleep. That's why you need to check out Helix Mattress. I've had my Helix for years now, and I absolutely love it. I sleep like a baby, even in the midst of what's arguably my busiest season 
will probably change once the twins arrive. But uh, for now, I am sleeping like a baby until we have babies. A mattress should never be a one-size-fits-all solution because why should you have to compromise on comfort? Helix has a sleep quiz that matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you because why would you buy a mattress made for someone else? Go to helixsleep.com Walsh, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and find the perfect mattress for your body type and your sleep type. Your mattress will come right to your door uh, for free. Plus, Helix has a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will, I guarantee it. So for a limited time, Helix is offering up to $350 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. This is an amazing offer. Take advantage of it at helixsleep.com Walsh. With Helix, better sleep starts now. This is from The Daily Wire. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill touted a $1.7 trillion funding package on Tuesday with both Democrats and Republicans claiming victories. And it's designed to avert a government shutdown when the current funding expires at midnight on Friday. The text of the legislation is uh, some 4,000 pages long, leaving very little hope for lawmakers, even with the help of aides, to get through the text prior to voting on the massive massive package. Uh, And according to the Heritage Foundation, the omnibus bill they uh, may not have the time to read, is packed with woke pet projects. Among them are a number of LGBTQ projects, from pride centers to museums and anti-racism initiatives, according to a thread shared on Twitter on Tuesday. Um, This is the game, of course, you know, as always, is to have these bills that are thousands and thousands of pages long that nobody could hope to read through, and then right before it's passed, and even after it's passed. I mean, infamously, of course, it was Nancy Pelosi who said, we have to pass it to find out what's in it. And that that has been, you know, that, I believe, the time she was talking about Obamacare, but that's 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 how it works with all legislation now. You just pass it, you get the, you get the gist of it, and then you pass it, and, uh, and then later on you find what's in it. And there's always this false sense of urgency. It's like, why, why can't we take a little bit of time there's no reason why any bill needs to be 4,000 pages long to begin with. There's no reason why that should be the case. You only do that because you're trying to sneak through all these kinds of things you don't, you don't want people to know about. Um, but if it is 4,000 pages, why can't we take some time and, and, and look at it first? There's always this false sense of urgency. The Congress, they, they sit around doing almost nothing for most of the year, and then out of nowhere, they, we got to pass this thing right now, right now, or everything, or we're, we're all going to die. And in this case, they say, well, we got to pass because, you know, of course, we have to avert the government shutdown. And what exactly is the problem if the government shuts down for a bit? We've been through that before, promised uh, catastrophic, uh, you know, consequences, and they never materialize. Anyway, the thread began with a headline in all capital letters, Woke Priorities in the Omnibus. Says here, just a few a uh, few earmarks, aka your taxpayer dollars, set aside for special interests or projects. We found in the 1,455-page spending bill that are funding the left's extreme agenda using your money. It read an addendum to the letter later noted that the number of pages had been a typo. That the actual size of the bill was much larger. It was actually 4,155 pages. Um, anyway, it says so. Just a few examples. Um, million for LGBTQI plus pride centers. 1.2 million for services for DACA recipients, aka helping illegal aliens with taxpayer funds. Uh, 477,000 for the Equity Institute in Rhode Island to indoctrinate teachers with anti-racism virtual labs. More projects were listed in the following tweets, including 
$1 million for Zora's House in Ohio, a co-working and community space for women and gender expansive people of color. Well, that's good. You know what? All this other stuff I'm not really on board for, but I was, I had, I just think about this the other day. In fact, I was wondering, I was talking to somebody about it. And I was, um, and I was concerned about the fact that gender expansive people of color in Ohio don't have um, enough co-working spaces available to them. I was really worried about it. So they're putting a million dollars in that. That's a very good thing. Um, $3 million for the American LGBTQ plus museum in New York City. $3.6 million for a Michelle Obama trail in Georgia. New York State Capitol is set to receive three quarters of a million dollars for LGBT and gender non-conforming housing. Baltimore will rake in a cool $2 million for a wax museum dedicated to African-Americans tentatively named Great Blacks in Wax. (laughs) Great Blacks in Wax. And New York will get over $800,000 for an LGBT center. I mean, none of this is actually funny, but it's, but like, what else are you going to do besides laugh about it? Because we, we have, this is just, we have no control over it. We have no, uh, no way to, to stop it because this is both Republicans and Democrats who are on board for it. So there's almost no, for, for those of us who are, do not agree with 4,000 page pieces of legislation that just become this bonanza for funding LGBT pet projects all over the, all over the, the country and all over the globe, those of us who don't agree with it, we have almost no representation at all in Congress. With a few exceptions. Rand Paul is one exception. So Rand Paul uh, had uh, his reaction to the bill yesterday. Let's watch some of this. I brought with me the Omni, 4,155 pages. When was it produced? In the dead of the night, 1.30 in the morning when it was released. Now, people argue that it's conservatives' fault. It's you don't have the Christmas spirit. Somehow you're holding up government. Well, whose job is it to produce this? the people in charge of spending, the people in charge of both of the parties. When did they know that this would be necessary? Well, it's in the law, September 30th. You got nine months, almost 10 months, to produce a plan, to have a spending plan. They weren't ready on September 30th, so they voted themselves 90 more days. They weren't ready last week either, so they voted themselves another week. And now we have it at 1.30 in the morning this morning. But what's the clamor? The clamor is to vote. Vote now. Let's get it done. Why are you standing in the way of spending? Well, the real question is this. What is more dangerous? What is more dangerous to the country? $1.1 trillion in new debt, or as Republican leadership likes to say, oh, but it's a win. It's a big win. We're getting $45 billion for the military. So which is more important? Which threatens the country more? Are we at risk for being invaded by a foreign power if we don't put $45 billion into the military? Or are we more at risk by adding to a $31 trillion debt? I like Rand Paul a lot. I've always liked him. I mean, if he ran in 2024, I, I would consider him a really interesting option. Um, and he's one of the only good ones in the Senate. And he's, he's more libertarian than I am, but that's, that's okay. He's also, he's, he's also consistent. Uh, much like his, his father, saying the same things, you know, standing for the same things. Um, 
one of the only guys that you can trust on foreign policy. He's one of the only Republicans that will say what he just said there. Which is like questioning, at least questioning the idea. No one's saying that we're not going to fund the military. But we got to send another $45 billion there right away or what? Like what's going to happen? Russia, they're going to invade us, really? Are they going to be, is Russia going to storm the beaches? As for the bill, listen, as the senator points out, there is just no interest among Republican leadership and among most rank-and-file Republicans to actually cut spending. This is one of the most absurd, you know, one of the most absurd falsehoods that we hear all the time is that Republicans are, you know, the party that stands for cutting spending. They've literally never done it. So just they've never, ever done it. So that's a, it's a total misnomer. They're not interested in it. Very few of them are. Because what, I mean, what does cutting spending actually mean? First of all, it's politically difficult to do. You know, because it, it means you're going up to these special interest groups and so on that have their own little pet projects. And you're saying, no, we're not giving you that money. And that's a politically difficult thing to do. And it also means less power. You know, the more the government spends, the more of our money they spend and the more power that they have. It's, it's, that's what the spending really is, about exerting more of their power. So to cut spending is also to cut power and influence. And um, what happens, big coincidence, you know, so often you have these people that run for Congress and they want to go to D.C. They say, we're going to rein in the government. We're going to shrink government. We're going to, government's too powerful. And then they get into the government and they say, well, now that I'm here, it's, it's a little bit, it's okay now to have all this power because I'm here. So it is all just a, a game. Okay, there's a new HBO documentary about January 6th that's out, and I have no interest in watching it, but I did enjoy this moment from the director when he was, this is the director of the documentary, and he was uh, being interviewed on CNN. And this was a lot of fun. Here it is. The movie's not just about, like, the, the Capitol riot and all that. It's also about, like, media echo chambers. You know what I mean? And, like, the dangers of the uh, 24-hour news cycle and how I think mainstream media like Fox and even CNN like competes for views by running constant 24-hour news cycles based upon fear, division, outrage, and panic, probably to like sell ads. So it's not just about the Capitol, right? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. First of all, I don't agree with what you're saying, but I'm not exactly sure of how that played into people going into the Capitol uh, and rioting on January 6th. Um, there's nothing fake about CNN. Oh, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying like fake news. I'm just saying ramping people up and increasing division during that period of time. <laughs> you know, Don Lemon was nodding along, you know, because when the guy was talking about cable news, he thought he was talking about Fox, you know, Fox, cable news, and Don Lemon's nodding. And also CNN. Well, no, 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 that's not, there's nothing, there's nothing fake about CNN. He doesn't, he doesn't see how anything CNN did prior to January 6th could have contributed to January 6th. And, well, I'm, I'm happy to explain that to you, Don. Um, there's quite a lot, actually. I mean, yes, the, the, the sensationalism for ratings is a big part of the story. As the uh, guy there points out, it's, this, is, this is the problem with 24-hour. I mean, 24-hour news just really shouldn't exist. 24-hour cable news shouldn't exist because there's just, like, there isn't, there's not urgent news to report 24 hours a day, every single day. 
It's like that nobody needs to know all of that all the time. And uh, what that means is they have to generate interest. And of course, it all comes down to ratings and advertising dollars. But, but even before that, what did CNN do that might have helped contribute to the events of uh, January 6th? Those events that this was not a this was not a, this was not an insurrection. This was not you know the American way of life hanging in the balance, and they almost overthrew the government. It was not that. It was a riot, though, no question about it. So how could CNN have contributed to a riot? Well, well, maybe because they spent months and months and months prior to that defending and encouraging rioting when it was BLM doing it anyway. Maybe that's how CNN and the rest of the corporate media played a role here. Because that wasn't happening in a vacuum. You're sending the message out that like it's okay to act this way now. It's okay to, if, you, if something happens and you don't like it, you can do this. You can just, you can riot and it'll be fine. And not only can you riot, but you can even attack government buildings. Which, as we know, the BLM riders, they actually attacked. It was an actual attack, like as in setting uh, police stations on fire. Which is something that, by the way, the, the, the burning, as I've been saying for years now, I'm not the only one, of course. Uh, but the burning of the police station in Minneapolis, that, that actually was, that's like the real January 6th. That, that, that is actually the moment that should live in infamy. That, that's, that's the moment that we should be talking about every year when we get to the anniversary of it. A, a time in a major American city, the United States of America, which is, which is supposed to be an advanced, civilized society. And here we have a major American city where a bunch of animals invaded a police station. The police went running for their lives and they burned it to the ground. But on the, on the sensationalism end of things as well, you know, talking about the sensationalism, sensationalism and the dangers of 24-7 news. Uh, someone on, on Twitter, in response to Don Lemon's claims there, posted this. And I just thought, like, it, it's just a, it's a good, good to remember this. We may remember, we may remember this, this uh, episode from semi-recent history. Probably the most egregious example of CNN uh, sensationalizing and trying to keep a story going. This, of course, was the uh, Malaysian Flight 370. And anyway, let's just go back and watch this clip again. What if it was hijacking or terrorism or mechanical failure or pilot error? But what if it was something fully that we don't really understand? A lot of people have been asking about that, about black holes and on and on and on and all of these conspiracy theories. Let's look at this. Uh, Noah says, what else can you think about? Black hole, Bermuda Triangle. And then Deji says, huh, just like the movie Lost. And of course, it's also, they're also referencing the Twilight Zone, which has a very similar plot. That's what people are saying. I know it's preposterous, but is it preposterous, you think, Mary? Well, it is a black hole. It's about, you know, a small black hole would suck in our entire universe. So we know it's not that. Bermuda Triangle is often weather, and uh, Lost is a TV show. So right. I think I always like things for which there's data, history, crunch the numbers. So for me, those aren't there. But I think it's wonderful that the whole world is trying to help with their theories. That, I had forgotten about that particular moment. I remembered CNN with Malaysian Flight 370. Uh, while Don Lemon claims that they never sensationalized, they just would not let this go for months. It was round-the-clock coverage. 
And uh, I, I had forgotten that he seriously proposed the possibility <laughs> that the flight flew into a black hole. Now, what she said in response, a small black hole would not suck in the entire universe. It would suck in the entire solar system. That it would do. Um, so pretty good indication. You know, anything's possible, I suppose, but it's a pr- pretty good indication. I mean, it's like maybe, I don't know, maybe it, the, the black hole sucked in Malaysian Flight 370 and and the, and we were all sucked into the black hole too. We're in a black hole right now. We don't even know it. I mean, like that, that, that could happen in a sci-fi movie. So they just went crazy with this story. And meanwhile, there was never, there was actually never any real big mystery about the flight because the flight obviously crashed into the ocean. Like that's, they spent, they spent months saying, what happened to it? Where is it? It's, it's at the bottom of the ocean. They, they crashed in the ocean. That's what happened. Why did it crash? Well, that is, is a more interesting question, but not one that necessitated the coverage that CNN gave it, certainly. All right, here's from a story from the Daily Mail. Says, two already approved drugs may effectively treat the millions of Americans estimated to have long COVID. Uh, this is guan, guanfacine, I don't know, an attention deficit hyperactivity disorder drug sold under the name Tenex. And then uh, another drug that is abbreviated NAC that I won't even try to pronounce is a concussion drug that is branded uh, mucomist, were found to reduce brain fog in two thirds of patients. So you have the pharmaceutical companies now that are on the case trying to come up with drugs to treat what they call long COVID. And they've discovered, apparently, that, what do you know, ADHD drugs may do the job. Now, it may interest you to know that this study where they made this discovery, you, know, you, you want to just take a guess on how many, um, how big the study was? Like how many, how many patients were included in the study? Well, it turns out 12. This was a study on 12 patients. And that is what led them to the conclusion that you can give ADHD drugs for quote unquote long COVID. Uh, the article continues, doctors at Yale University believe the combination protects the brain's prefrontal cortex from stress and inflammation, which can break down neural connections and cause the symptoms associated with brain fog. While the study was small, only on 12 patients, the researchers believe they have found an effective treatment for the elusive condition, one that is available at pharmacies right now. Well, hey, they only tried it on 12 patients, but that's enough. Just give it to, you know, you tried it out on 12. Uh, it seemed to maybe work on a few of them. So let's give it to millions of people. Why not? The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report that around 8% of Americans are suffering long COVID and more than 3,500 have died as a result. Okay. You know, in a certain way, this actually makes sense because... ADHD is about as real as long COVID. So, of course, you would treat them with the same drug. Um, Am I saying that long COVID doesn't exist at all? Uh, I'm skeptical about it, but I feel the same way about it as I do about ADHD, actually. So, actually, again, it does make sense that they're using the same drug. ADHD. I mean, are there people who, we have the category of ADHD, and are there people who fall into that category? Sure. But the problem is that it's it's such a vague, all-encompassing concept that there's no way really to define it. So what is long COVID? I I looked up uh, the official symptoms as they're listed on the CDC website. 
But what, what qualifies as long COVID? Remember, they said 8% of Americans have long COVID. What does that mean exactly? Um, so here's a list of symptoms. Tiredness or fatigue. Symptoms that get worse after physical or mental effort. Fever. Difficulty breathing or shortness of breath. Cough. Chest pain. Fast beating or pounding heart. Difficulty thinking. Headache. Sleep problems. Dizziness when you stand up, pins and needles feelings, change in smell or taste, depression, anxiety, diarrhea, stomach pain, joint or muscle pain, rash, changes in menstrual cycles. So all of those, they are, they are quantifying as symptoms of long COVID. So that's another way of saying that, like, if you have COVID, Anything that happens to you physiologically after COVID could qualify as long COVID. So anyone could have it. And that's particularly the case for these kinds of quote unquote symptoms that are impossible to define. Like anyone can convince themselves that they have some of this. It's going to be difficult to convince yourself you have like a fever, you either have that or you don't. But brain fog? If, if you want to convince yourself you have brain fog, you can. Brain fog is something that everybody experiences. Whatever that means exactly, it's impossible to define. But it's something that, whatever it means, people experience it probably every day. I wake up every morning, I have brain fog. That's been the case my entire life. Have, have I always had long COVID? Difficulty concentrating. Has, have you ever gone through, have you gone through a day in your life when at least for a period of that day, you didn't have difficulty concentrating? Have you, have you ever in your life experienced one full day where you were able to concentrate perfectly without any difficulty? Have you ever experienced that in your life? And then of course, depression, anxiety. I mean, this is what the pharmaceutical company, companies do. This is how they, this is bread and butter for them. When they can vaguely diagnose and prescribe treatments for um, symptoms that are incredibly ambiguous and that literally anyone could have. And it's, uh, it's the same thing that they've been doing in the, in the you know, psychiatric world for a long time. And now this is what's happening with COVID as well. All right, I was pretty honored by this, I have to say. Um, Media Matters lists the uh, top 10 misinformers in 2022. Well, not exactly. These are, these are Tucker Carlson's go-to misinformers in 2022. The top 10 individuals. This is uh, Media Matters. They say, Over the past year, Fox News' Tucker Carlson, who is being named Media Matters Misinformer of the Year, Leverage this platform to amplify the reach of these 10 individuals as they spread misinformation. They push topics including bigotry against immigrants in the LGBTQ community, misinformation about COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, climate change, and general right-wing grievances. So Tucker Carlson did get the title of Misinformer of the Year. Uh, I, they didn't even have like any, they didn't even list any runners up. I, 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 you know, I knew I wasn't going to I probably was you know, competing against Tucker Carlson. It was going to be a tough competition. I'm a little bit disappointed. I mean, given the fact that me, I do have my own section on the site that they list on Google. So I, you know, I'd, I'd like to know how many votes I got at least. 
But ultimately, they gave it to, uh, to Tucker Carlson, although I was listed as one of his top misinformers. So uh, I feel pretty good about that. They listed his top misinformers, Jason Rance, Glenn Greenwald, Candace Owens, Tulsi Gabbard, Shia Reichick, who lives at TikTok, Stephen Miller, Alex Berenson, Douglas uh, McGregor, and then also Matt Walsh. Says the Daily Wire self-described theocratic fascist and anti-trans extremist. Matt Walsh was a frequent guest, guest on uh, Tucker Carlson Tonight. Walsh who has helped lead a right-wing campaign of harassment against children's hospitals, providing life-saving gender-affirming care to trans youth, and who has previously slandered LGBTQ people as groomers, was on the show 12 times. And of course, the right-wing campaign of harassment uh, against children's hospitals, that entire campaign consisted of me and not just me, along with Libs of TikTok and Chris Rufo and others, simply pointing out that, here, hey, look, guys, look at what these hospitals are doing. That's, that's what harassment is. And this is yet another article. You could read the entire thing, and, and you, you see lots of people being labeled misinformer, lots of claims that are labeled misinformation, and yet they never even try to explain how or why we're wrong. Like, what did we say that was wrong exactly? What claims did we make about hospitals that was incorrect? But we know, of course, that on the left, misinformation is, uh, it's not wrong information or faulty information. It's simply information that they find inconvenient. That's what it means. All right, let's get now to the comment section. Who makes Twitter mob fly off the handle with rage? Who's to blame? It's a sweet baby gang. I don't mean to brag, by the way, but I am, I am feeling pretty good today, uh, feeling a little bit accomplished. I, I took all four of my kids out to eat at a sit-down restaurant last night, well, two nights ago, actually, uh, by myself. So just me and the four kids. I decided to do this, you know, because I've been traveling a lot over the last few months, lots of traveling. It's been hard on the kids, hard on my wife. So I would like, give her a break, take the kids out, spend some quality time. And uh, so I would take them all out to, to eat by myself, you know, and this, this is parenting difficulty level set to expert. Maybe, well, not quite, because expert level would be by yourself, four kids, and then you go to the kind of restaurant that doesn't even have a kid's menu, right? That's, that, that's not even expert level. That's suicide mission. That's a kamikaze mission. Going to like a nice, quiet place with four kids, just you, um, kamikaze mission. And the casualties will be all of the nice people and the other patrons whose date nights you ruin. So I wouldn't do that. Instead, well, I made it easier on myself and we went to a Texas Roadhouse. And Texas Roadhouse is great because it's loud, it's cheap, it's greasy. You know, it's not very clean, let's be honest. They used to, you know, remember at Texas Roadhouse, they used to give you, I don't think, I haven't been to one in a while that does this, but they used to give you buckets of peanuts at this place, and you would just, you, you, you just chuck the peanut shells on the ground, and there's peanut shells all over the place. And they stopped doing that um, when the peanut allergy issue finally caught up with them. I don't know how they got away with it for so long. It's like 10 years after they banned peanut butter jelly sandwiches in, in uh, school cafeterias, uh, Texas Roadhouse was still decorating their restaurant in peanut shell confetti. So they don't do that anymore, but there still is all other, you know, the people throw everything else on the floor at Texas Roadhouse. Napkins, 
dirty diapers, just like buckets of barbecue sauce. It's great. Perfect for a night out with the kids. And uh, it went very well. And it was one of those parenting all-star moments where you get the compliment from the old lady. There was an old lady who was sitting next to us. She got up to leave and she leaned in and said, your kids are so well-behaved and sweet. And I said to them, good job. You, you fooled her, kids. Just one brief hiccup. I had my face buried in my country fried chicken with gravy because I, I was doing the low, low calorie option as always. Wasn't playing close, close attention. Look over and my three-year-old had crawled under the table at the Texas Roadhouse and was sitting on the ground at the Texas Roadhouse, like the ground that probably hasn't been cleaned since like the Bush administration. And she's sitting there, pulled her back up. I, she may have eaten something off the floor. I didn't want to ask. I didn't want to know. This is one of those, it's better not to know situations. But other than that, it was a good experience. All right. Gabe Smith says, I think calling a 12-year-old 12, 12 a kidult is a purposeful, sinister ploy to make the sexualization of 12 to 13-year-olds more acceptable. Um, yeah, I was disturbed by that as well. We were talking about the so-called kidults yesterday, and they label that 12, 12 plus is a kidult. But as I said yesterday, it's like if you're 12, you're not a kidult or an adult, you're just a kid. 12-year-old playing with toys, not only fine, but I consider that that's a positive sign. If like a 12-year-old still playing with something like Legos, because the other option is what? The 12-year-old's on the screens all the time. You know, it's, it's, that, that would tell me that this is a child that still has some innocence and some you know, childlike wonder about them, and I consider that a good thing. Um, adults buying toys is a different deal entirely. Uh, Paige says, Matt is 100% correct. Growing up, my family never ate at the dinner table. We all ate different things at different times. I watched TV more than I went outside. I first got a device with the internet when I was seven years old. My most cherished memories of my childhood are from my grandparents' house when I would uh, go to see them and all my aunts and uncles and cousins. But after they moved away, my parents got divorced. I spent every uh, even more time staring at screens, eating alone. I feel very little nostalgia for my childhood. All the toys and movies and TV shows aren't a replacement for family. I think this kidult trend is very disturbing. And this is the story that uh, so many people in my generation, if this is your generation too, millennials, this is, this is how they grew up, uh, just staring at screens. And if you think about it, like that was the case in the 90s, how much more is it the case for kids these days? Uh, another comment says, I'm always flabbergasted by how, how many adults without kids flood Disneyland and Legoland making it an unpleasant experience for those of us who bring our kids to these playgrounds. And I will, I will never understand that. Like it's not only, of course, immature to go just as an adult to a place like Disney World, but also why would you want to? If you're, if you're you know, like if you don't have any kids and you want to go with your wife or someone to, to, to a vacation somewhere, without kids, you could go anywhere you want. And if you've got the money to go to Disney World, it means you've got some money to spend on the vacation. So you got you have money to spend on a vacation. You don't have kids that you need to worry about. You've got some time off. You can go anywhere, and you decide to wait in lines at Disney World? Doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, Dormition says, I'm 40, fully employed, happily married, have a son. I still collect toys, 70s to 90s ma mainly. It's a hobby of mine. Plenty of people collect things that make them happy, and I see nothing wrong with that. We're not hurting anyone, and it's one of the many things my son and I bond over. I love introducing him to toys and cartoons I grew up with, and luckily I still have a lot of the toys I grew up with. 
that I get to share with him. Yeah, a lot of comments like this, people claiming that they're, you know, that they are an exception to what I said about adults buying toys for themselves. And these responses always frustrate me because, look, if you know yourself to be an exception, then fine. Then you are. There's nothing to worry about. I guess I'm not talking about you. What I said doesn't apply to you. That's fine. You know, I never said that it applies to absolutely everyone in the world. In fact, I specifically said that if we're talking about fully competent adults who are contributing to society and they have families and they have responsibilities and they're well-rounded, mature, intelligent people, and they also happen to have like a toy collection— that's not my thing, but then it's it's more of just a, it's a, a quirk or an eccentricity, and if that's your thing, then fine, whatever. But the point is that the $9 billion adults spend on toys in a given year for themselves, that's not all or mostly being driven by collectibles, okay? These are not mostly people buying collectibles. And the greater point is that we do have a major problem of adults stuck in perpetual adolescence, refusing to grow up, refusing to accept responsibility. This is not really deniable. I don't think you would deny it. We obviously have that problem in our culture. And the toy thing is a symptom of that. And I think contributes to that. Except in cases when it doesn't. So that's how you break it down. Our small but mighty team in South Florida is growing, and we're in need of a new associate producer to make it even mightier. The AP will assist and support our show uh, producers with general oversight of show production. Technical production skills are a must for this role as well. Candidates who have strong experience with operating cameras, microphones, and other audio equipment are preferred. Additionally, you'll be responsible for tasks such as helping to schedule and set up various shows, assisting in coordinating and producing special show segments, prepping material for guest interviews, and more. The needs change every day, so you have to be good at adapting. This is an in-office position in Southern Florida. Local candidates are strongly preferred, but we're open to considering exceptional candidates who are eager to relocate to South Florida. If this sounds like you, go to dailywire.com slash Walsh and click careers for more info and also to apply. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. The Avatar sequel, Avatar 2, The Way of Water, was released this past weekend, 13 years after the original came out, 12 and a half years after everyone forgot that the original ever existed. It was a brief moment in time when millions of people were somehow duped into believing that Avatar was a good film, but the fever broke rather suddenly, and most of those who had fallen under its spell quickly realized the whole thing was just Fern Gully as reimagined by the Blue Man Group. Not exactly a plot twist, therefore, to tell you that the sequel fizzled at the box office on its first weekend of release. It fizzled with $134 million over the weekend, to be precise. Which seems like a lot of money to qualify as a flop until you realize that they spent a billion dollars making this thing and poured hundreds of millions into marketing so that anything less than a historic box office haul would be a disappointment. And in this case, the movie fell under even the most modest projections. Now, I, for one, am quite pleased with with this result. Um, I like it when bad movies perform poorly, and this is a bad movie. It may have impressive special effects, but then uh, there really isn't anything that is actually impressive about special effects anymore. I'll never understand people these days who are like, well, great special effects, so what? If you you have a billion dollars to make a movie, we expect that the CGI will be top of the line. That's like, that's just basic level stuff. What matters is the story. And if the first Avatar was a rehash of what a dozen other films had already done and done better, then Avatar 2 is a rehash of a rehash. There's nothing new about this kind of cynical recycling, of course, but it's always worse coming from James Cameron because although 
he hasn't had an original idea in like 30 years, he still considers himself to be a genius storyteller. And so both the first Avatar and this reheated version are epically, absurdly long. Like this one's almost three and a half hours long as Cameron indulges every narcissistic, showy impulse, refusing to cut a single scene or a single line of dialogue because he believes that the entire thing is a work of staggering genius. Even though it's literally just Pocahontas, but not as good. On top of that, Cameron happens to be one of the wokest directors currently working in Hollywood. Avatar is, of course, an environmentalism allegory about the perils of colonialism. It's not my interpretation. That's what he says it is. And if the wokeness wasn't clear enough, Cameron's been out on the trail promoting the film by ranting against the evils of testosterone, as we covered in a recent Daily Cancellation. He claimed that testosterone is a poison that must be purged from the bloodstream. And then on Friday, in an interview with Variety, he bragged that uh, Avatar is setting a new standard for female empowerment because it features a pregnant female warrior. So in the Daily Wire, it says, Director James Cameron said in a recent interview that his upcoming movie, Avatar The Way of Water, is the most empowering movie for women because one of the characters is a pregnant warrior. The movie, which uh, debuted in theaters across the U.S. on Friday, continues where the first movie left off. Uh, and in this film, one of the main characters, Nightiri, is pregnant. Cameron made the remarks about Nightiri during an interview with Variety when he was asked why it was important to have Nightiri and another character be pregnant in the movie. He said, quote, everybody's always talking about female empowerment, but what is such a big part of a woman's life that we as men don't experience? And I thought, well, if you're really going to go all the way down the rabbit hole of female empowerment, Let's have a female warrior who's six months pregnant in battle. I thought, let's take the real boundaries off. To me, it's the last bastion that you don't see. Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel, all these other amazing women come up, but they're not moms and they're not pregnant while they're fighting evil. Yes, he's gone down the rabbit hole of female empowerment. But is this really all the way down the rabbit hole? What about a pregnant female in a wheelchair in battle? How about a pregnant, blind, trans woman with one leg, epilepsy, and a diagnosed anxiety disorder in battle. Now, it's not clear how any of this actually would be empowering. In fact, it's not clear how the exploits of a fictional character in a CGI universe could ever empower anyone regardless, pregnant or not. But this is what empowerment has become. For the record, you know, even if this is a fictional universe, there is actually nothing empowering about sending pregnant women off to fight battles. A truly empowered pregnant woman is going to prioritize protecting her unborn child and therefore is not going to put herself in a situation where both she and the child are very likely to be hurt. But this is, this is the Hollywood idea of empowerment. The empowered person is the person who acts like anything other than what they are. The person who rejects their fundamental duties and responsibilities. The empowered woman is then the woman who acts like a man, while the empowered man is the man who acts like a woman. This is the empowerment they sell us, which is empowerment turned on its head. It's the opposite of empowerment, which is the essence of wokeness. Everything is the opposite of what it ought to be. And yet, even with all this effort to be woke, the film still is not woke enough. Here's the headline from Newsweek. Avatar faces calls for boycott over accusations of racism. The article then explains... Director James Cameron is facing allegations of Native American and indigenous cultural appropriation over the themes and imagery in his latest blockbuster, Avatar The Way of Water. Like his predecessor, the sequel centers on a story about colonizers taking over land from tribes. And Cameron's telling the colonizers are humans who need a new inhabitable planet because Earth's resources are becoming increasingly de uh, depleted. 
Also like its predecessor, the new Avatar film is being accused of using an amalgamation of, of histories of various indigenous cultures for a film that features a largely white cast. Among those upset by Cameron's film is Yubi Gay, a Native American influencer and co-chair of Indigenous Pride LA. Do not watch Avatar, The Way of Water, Begay wrote on Twitter on Sunday. Join natives and other indigenous groups around the world in boycotting this horrible and racist film. Begay also said that indigenous uh, cultures were appropriated in a harmful manner to satisfy a white man's, quote, savior complex. Another Twitter user whose critiques of Avatar have gained attention is Autumn Asher Blackbeer, an assistant professor in the Graduate School of Social Work at the University of Denver, why watch a movie about blue aliens when you could just support actual indigenous people and our struggle for clean water here on Earth? Yes, we do exist, Black Deer wrote. She followed up with a thread listing sci-fi films made by indigenous people. So that's right. Avatar commits appropriation. They do have a point. I mean, after all, James Cameron, he does cast mostly white actors to portray people of color in the film. Now, it's true the color of the people in this case is blue, and they're not even people, but uh, that's irrelevant. He could, have, he could have at least, here's all I'm saying, he could have made the effort to try to travel to another solar system and find actual blue aliens to fill these roles. He could have tried. Didn't even try. Instead, he just took the easy way out, put actors in blue face instead. Now, the criticism here is obviously ridiculous. What's more, they're attacking James Cameron for somehow negating or minimizing the struggles of, quote, indigenous people when the entire movie is one long, overly simplistic, childish retelling of the settlement of the new world, wherein white man bad, native people good. This is exactly the version of history that these activists want us to accept. They demand that we accept it. And James Cameron has spent billions of dollars creating not one, but two pieces of overwrought propaganda to deliver just that message. And they're still mad. That's how it works. Of course, the game is rigged especially if you're a white man. The woke are never satisfied. Whatever you do, it will not be enough. Whatever you do, you should have done something else. The woke are never happy. They make demands that cannot be satisfied. And that's because they don't want to be satisfied. They just want the demands. They don't want the satisfaction of those demands. They want the demands. Trying to please them, then, is a fool's errand. And James Cameron, James Cameron is just that sort of fool, which is why he is canceled for, I think, like the second time in a week. And that'll do it for this portion of the show as we move over to the members block. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed. Godspeed.